Welcome to the Millionaire Secrets Podcast, where the most successful people in the world share their secrets to help you create the awesome life you desire. Welcome to another episode of Millionaire Secrets. This is your host, Jeff Lerner, always ecstatic to be with you yet again. And today I am joined by Mr. Brandon Dawson, who is the CEO and co-founder of Cardone Ventures a very accomplished serial entrepreneur. Before he got into business with Uncle G, he uh, founded and then exited the Autogy Group for $151 million, took his first company public at 29, which he founded at 26, two-time Ernst & Young Entrepreneur of the Year semifinalist, six-time Inc. 500 and Inc. 5000 recipient, generally just a really smart dude that we're lucky to have on the show. Welcome, Brandon, to Millionaire Secrets. Hey, I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me on your show. Yeah, I'm, I'm grateful you made the time. Um, and it's actually perfect timing. We actually had Grant on the show last week, uh, as it as it turned out. Um, and I think we were I think we were we, we had you booked to come on a while back and then it got rescheduled. And I don't know what happened. Doesn't matter. But I'm grateful you're here. Um, so, you know, you've been hugely successful. Obviously, what you're doing now is not only very successful, very high profile. Um, you're, you know, certainly a, a mover and shaker that has a lot of access to a lot of, a lot of, uh, you know, high level things in the world. But I'd like to go back before all of that, when, when Brandon was just a, a wee tyke with big dreams and, and maybe you can tell us a little bit. I, I also happen to, know, to read that you grew up on a walnut farm. So can you talk a little bit about your, your beginnings? Yeah, you know, my parents didn't have any money and uh, if I wanted to have gas money and, play sports. Uh, they, they had, they, they relied for my little brothers and I, they needed to make $5,500 a year on our little five acre walnut orchard. And so my job was to take care of that orchard and pick the walnuts up, which I hated doing because it always stained my hands and were nasty. And, and, um, and so, but if I wanted money and my parents needed the money to put us in, we went to a small private Christian school and that they needed it every single year for tuition. So it was important. And my parents worked hard and they wanted the kids to go to that school. And I felt the responsibility to make sure I took care of that walnut orchard. I used to sit on the tractor dreaming about what it would be like to leave Corvallis, Oregon. Problem was I was a 2.4 GPA. I hated school. I loved football. I wasn't good enough to play football beyond maybe a small college. And then I hurt my knee my senior year, but you know, it's just uh, dreaming about what can be done. And I started watching shows and reading books, uh, not very many books because I didn't read well, uh, but Barbarians at the Gate uh, was one of my favorites. And then uh, shows like Wall Street and stuff came out. And I, I dreamed about being in New York and a tall building doing something moving and shaking and fast and furious. And everyone told me that I should just suck up realize I'm going to continue to work at the night deposit as a bus boy or a dishwasher. And, and I should get a job at Les Schwab. I could maybe get up to where I'm earning 20 bucks an hour. And that's what all my friends were telling me. And I just, uh, I just decided when I was 18 and I graduated, I need to get out of town and I moved to Atlanta, Georgia. So, uh, Les Schwab is a tire shop, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's, which is funny. Cause when I was a musician, like half the guys, there were six of us in the band and actually I think three and at one point four of them worked at Discount Tire. Yeah. And that was that, they had the same dream, man. It was like, oh, we're going to rise. This is, you know, this will, 
I guess t- tire shops do a good job of recruiting or something. They make it sound really sexy. Um, yeah. And so, and and then uh, Barbarians at the Gate. That's I've never read it, but I've heard of it. That has uh, it's about Nabisco, right? Yeah, it's just about Wall Street and the power they had and takeovers and you know the legacy names. A lot of them went away, unfortunately, in 09, 10, and eleven. But uh, but it was just about you know it was about buying businesses and and important people doing big things. Right, right. You know, I wasn't smart enough to put all the intricacies together at the time. But so, you know, what's interesting is, is my senior year, I got grounded when the Walnut Orchard was coming in and my parents were going out of town and they knew I had football practice school and I worked at the night deposit as a dishwasher bus boy. So they couldn't tell me I couldn't have my car. And they were pretty pissed at me because I had this girl I liked and um, I was coming home late. And so they told me, hey, we're going out of town. You need to pick up the Walnuts. Um, and I was like, oh my gosh. So I went to school the next day and there was a note on the senior locker saying senior fund drive. And they were trying to raise $1,000 for the senior trip. So I went up to the president of the class. I had this idea. This is my first entrepreneurial epiphany. I went up to the president of the class and said, hey, maybe I can contribute some money towards your towards your uh, senior trip if you guys come out and help me pick some walnuts. I went to a small school, so I thought maybe three, four, five people would come and I might be able to pick up two or three days and see my girl while my parents were out of town. It ended up that next day, like, so many people came because they brought their brothers, their sisters, their mothers, everybody. We we picked that walnut orchard clean in three days. And then the parents bought all the walnuts. And there's all these lessons from that. And I didn't know how to set the pricing because it was on the pound. And I was too dumb to operate the calculators. I made up a number. And my parents needed $5,500 each year. I got $8,500. And, and, and I didn't touch the walnuts. Uh, I just orchestrated And there were so many lessons in that little three-day window that have stuck with me because the more people you throw at a problem with an objective, the better chance you have to get it done. Price is only an issue in the absence of value. So create value, stop focusing on price. Uh, and, And people will do things not because of the what, but because of the result of the what. So, so many business owners build their business talking about what we do, what we do, what we do, but people don't really care. As long as that works, they care why you do it. They care who you do it with. They care how you do it. Uh, because they want to have a great experience. And so there are so many things I learned from these stupid walnuts that now I eat them because I have to do it in appreciation for how much they taught me. That's uh, that's such a great story, man. And, and, and you know, I've had, I, this is something like episode 120 or, you know, it's enough. It's a pretty good sample group. And every everybody to a person, every successful entrepreneur has some little story like that where they, they just kind of see the light of, of leverage and value and these principles that sadly I've never heard anybody talk about how they learned it in school. (laughs) You know, it's always stuff they, they learned outside of school, which is a whole other conversation, but uh, yeah, it's, that's such a cool story. So, so I'm curious though, what was it that, that again, was the light bulb moment where you're like, man, there's, there's these principles out there in the world that I could go, capitalize on but maybe there's better places to do that than corvallis oregon or was there something else because obviously you didn't get stuck at les schwab tire no you know so so here's the beautiful thing about life uh and here's the thing that every high performing individual and business owner needs to know it's only in reflection looking back that you understand something that you didn't know at the time so so you know it's either through pain or gain 
And unfortunately, a lot of business owners are always making decisions based on their bad past choices, right? So it formulates their future activities, which continues not to work. But uh, what happened is I knew I wanted to get out of Corvallis. So I took a job in Atlanta and I just packed all my shit up, moved to Atlanta. And I became an outside sales rep for a device company traveling 11 states and just learning to grow up on my own, learning to have to talk to professionals and sell stuff and, and find, you know, maps. They didn't have MapQuest. So you couldn't even print it out. You had to take a, an atlas and draw a line and figure out where you're going to stay. And you just had to become completely and entirely self-sufficient. I think that's the single best choice I ever made. And I did that for a couple of years. And then I had an opportunity to move to Minneapolis where the headquarters was because I was doing such a good job. And I became the assistant sales manager of the director of U.S. sales. Um, and I was there for a year and I got a phone call that said, hey, we're firing the director of U.S. sales. There's 28 sales reps. Uh, you're going to be in charge of them until we can figure out what to do. And so I took 28 immediately when I got put in charge down to about 18. And then we sold 25 million more of what they had ever sold before. And so at 24, 25, 26, I was making 150, 180, built a brand new, beautiful home in Minnesota. I had a two and a half year old with my wife and I had a brand new newborn. And there were some things that were happening. And I was sitting in, in meetings with people that were 20, 30 years older than me, making the same money as me. And it dawned on me, I could be here for 30 years and be making the same money. And so I had made enough that I could live for a year. And I took the same ambition I took when I just moved to Atlanta and decided to wing it. And the confidence I had from being able to sell and live and do my own things, I just charted my own course. I went to my wife at the time and said, we're selling our $350,000 house we just built. We're going to move into a little tiny place back in Portland, Oregon. And uh, I'm going to become a business owner. And what precipitated that is the customers we were selling were showing up and a lot of the older ones were showing up saying, hey, I just wanted to tell you, thank you for supplying us and helping us. Uh, we've, this has been a great run, but we've decided to retire. So we gave all of our patient files and our customer files to our competitors and we're just going to shut down our business. And so I was thinking there's no one buying these businesses. That's, that's crazy. Maybe I should buy them. And that was the thought. And so I left and I made dozens of presentations to old business owners saying, look, are you thinking of selling? And I found a few that said they're thinking of selling within a year, two or three uh, or, or shutting down. And I said, instead of shutting down, let's value your business. I'll, I'll give you a note for half of what it's worth and I'll build it. And your other half will be worth something. And, and most people said, nah, and they were, you know, they, they thought it was crazy, right. but I found somebody with a $3 million business. I parlayed that into a, taking my first business public at 29 years old, ringing the opening bell of the American Stock Exchange. So from 25, 26 to 29, I acquired hundreds of businesses, franchised a thousand locations and took it public. And so it just, when it happened, it happened fast. And there was a lot, I, let me say a majority of the decisions I made in that window of time were wrong. <laughs> um, well, I mean, majority of decisions that a venture capital fund makes are wrong too, but they only have to get it right a few times, right? Yeah, well, that's the difference between them and me. In fact, that's how I raised the, the, my first money. No one was saying yes. And finally, somebody said, why would I give a 26-year-old, my first raise was a million dollars, and I'll never forget. He said, why would I, this is Raul Saget in North Van, uh, Vancouver, BC, at, it was probably about 3.30 in the afternoon. And he looked at me and he said, why would I give a 26-year-old, a 26-year-old who's never run a business a million dollars? 
And I said, that's a great question. And if I was you, I'd ask the same question. But here's the only honest answer I can give to you. You run a $500 million fund. You can bet on 500 people like me. And it only takes one. And you can get a windfall. For me, this is my only bet. Because if I don't do something with your million dollars, no one's ever going to give me money again. So this is all I have. And I have to make it work. The next day after meeting again, he wrote me the check for a million dollars. And that was the first million I raised, but it took a hundred plus presentations of being told no, being laughed out of businesses and offices and rich people's offices. And, and it was painful. Uh, but I got that first million finally. So tenacity, not giving up, pivoting, readjusting how you present, thinking about what went wrong, what went right, assessing, going back at it over and over and over. That's how you win. You don't win by giving up for sure. So, you know, there's a lot, I mean, a lot of maybe your sexier, bigger headlines happened after everything you've just described, but so much of what you just described feels incredibly instructive to, to dig into for a minute. So uh, first of all, let's go back to the sales thing. So you go to Atlanta, First of all, let's go back to Corvallis where you had the gumption to go, I need to get out of here. There's a, there's a greener pasture somewhere else and I'm going to take that chance. So, you know, props there. Then you go to Atlanta and then there's, and I forgive me, I'm, I'm butchering the story, but there's, um, you know, you're competing among a bunch of independent outside sales reps and you obviously are a top performer because they end up inviting you to corporate. You're running a team, you get promoted, you slash the team, but increase production. So, you know, uh, you're not the, in all of those situations, like in Corvallis, you're not the only kid with a dream. In Atlanta, you're not the only outside sales guy. In Minnesota, you're not the only assistant, you know, executive. But, and, and you've already said you had a 2.4 GPA. Did you go to college? No. No, no college. So you're not the most academically sophisticated or by your own admission, just smartest. Or, I mean, you said at one point, I think you said you struggled to read. So like, why, how? Why were you winning in these environments? Because, you know, I, I like to try to not look at life as a competition, but in, in the free market it is, and you were winning. What was your intangible? What was your X factor that had you win after win after win? You know, it's funny. Uh, my, my sixth grade year and seventh grade year, I played football and I was really timid to hit somebody. And my dad, my eighth grade year said, if you're serious about playing football in high school, you need to toughen up and, and, and you need to put a hit on somebody. You need to know what it feels like. And I'll never forget on a kickoff return in the eighth grade, I had a guy in my sights and I decided to fully commit. And I hit that, that kid so hard. We both, you know, just went flying it, but I, we, we, we slammed into each other and I jumped up from that and I said, that's it. And I was all state junior and senior year, small ball, by the way, small, but the point is I was tenacious on the football field and I loved it because I realized you're either hunting or you're being hunted. And if you're not all in, you're actually going to get hurt. And so if you're all in, you have less likelihood of getting hurt. And, and so when I graduated high school, I, I was not good enough to play. I took a knee injury in my senior year and I wasn't good enough anyway to play like any real ball. Uh, but the lessons I learned from that was I'd rather be hunting and I'd rather be the aggressor 
than sitting back waiting to see what's going to happen. So the decisions I made, like I'm going to move to Atlanta, I'm, I'm going to be the best salesperson, I'm, I'm, going to, I'm going to take on whatever tasks other people don't want, I'm just going to keep pushing, um, was something inside of me. And, and I didn't care about looking stupid. This is another thing. Like I was more interested in being successful than looking dumb. I acknowledge that I wasn't the smartest guy in the room. I acknowledge that I wasn't the most polished person. I acknowledge I'm competing against adults. I mean, 18, 19, 20 years old, I'm competing against 35, 40, 50 year olds that are doing the same work. And there's no way I have their experience. So I just accepted all that as, okay, that's, that's not my com competitive advantage. So then what was my competitive advantage? And my competitive advantage was no fear and outwork everybody and say yes to any task I was asked to do and just do it the best I can and, and figure it out. And, um, I think that mindset has has both helped me and hurt me at points in time, uh, because when when I had took that company public and I was on top of the world, I started feeling like I was invincible, and I started making fast decisions without proper guidance from my mentors and getting the right wisdom. And consequently, at the peak of my career, after six years of figuring it out, getting ready to dominate the world doing all sorts of creative things. Um, I got a call from my private equity group and, and I flew back to New York thinking they were gonna congratulate me on what they defined as one of the most creative financings they'd ever seen from any level of sophisticated people they, they invested in. And this wasn't just some private equity group, this was Warburg Pincus, one of the most prestigious in the globe with 18 billion under management, dealing with really super smart people. So when they said that to me, I was like, I have arrived. Uh, I show up uh, in May of 2001. I was at the absolute highest peak of my career. I was devastating the industry I was in on a macro basis. I had all the leverage from a retail standpoint. Manufacturers were flying me to Switzerland and taking me on the Orient Express to kiss my ass to get business from me. I just felt like I had arrived. And, uh, and that was May when I came off the Orient Express and flew from France back to Portland. And then two weeks later, I was in New York thinking at a board meeting, I was going to get this amazing pat on the back. And instead they said, we want you to sell the company and have it sold in 90 days. And I said, I can't, this is why? I said, because we want to, we're distributing the $2 billion fund you're in. It's worth $6.8 billion. We're going to convert your equity to cash. I'm like, that sounds great, but I don't know what any of that means. They said, it means you're selling the company. And I said, no, guys, I'm not selling the company. That's crazy. We're just getting ready to conquer and dominate and do amazing things. And they said, yeah, that's what the other guy said too. So the CEO that's replacing you is in the other room. We want you to meet him. So by June of 2001, uh, I was at the lowest point ever in my life. Uh, and I battled trying to buy my company back and that weathered me. And, and, and so in, in early to, and then September 11th happened and I was in my office when it happened and and it was devastating and it was just really a hard time. And, and, and in 2000, middle of 2002, I was still complaining about it and barely made any money out of the deal and had to force them to pay the, it's just a disaster. And uh, especially emotionally. And one of my mentors grabbed me at the end of 2002 and, he, and, and I was still bitching about what they'd done, if they left me alone, how much money I was gonna make, how I'd have dominated. He said, uh, you know, Brandon, what you think is what you say, what you say is what you do, what you do becomes your legacy. 
And the future is made up of every granular moment that starts right now. So whatever you're talking about, you're going to create more of, and you can't have contradicting thoughts to actions. So here's the deal. If you're going to be a drainer, you're going to talk like a drainer, you're going to act like a victim. That's all you're going to find the rest of your life. So take a piece of paper out and write this down. Cause if you don't, I'm never playing golf with you again. And we were on the ninth hole at Bighorn and he was my, or eighth hole. And he was my absolute best friend. Hector Lamarck. And he said, write this down or we're not ever playing golf again. Cause I can't listen to this shit anymore. And I wrote those things down and, and he said, so pick, pick what your future is and start talking about it and identify all the remarkable and great things that you did do, but own the things, the mistakes you made, go back and dissect it and write down what mistakes you made and, and then commit. You'll never make those mistakes again. And then go do the things you exemplified and never do the things that you did wrong. In fact, do the opposite of that. Convert those into intention statements. Read Beyond Positive Thinking by Dr. Robert Anthony. explains intention statements. Or go to cardoventures.com forward slash emergency and download my emergency business response. And I talk about exactly how I set my intention statements. And he said, decide, choose, and then act and never get distracted. And that's when I came up with the idea, reverse consolidation. All these businesses that Warburg took me to that, oh, you could be like this and you could be like this. And they're 500 million and 300 million and 1 billion. They were all out of business by the time I sold. So I knew there was a problem with consolidation with mergers on, on, on uh, with micro market type businesses. And so I took my experience of buying a hundred and something businesses and franchising a thousand. And I, I started asking the question, synergies, efficiencies, economies of scale, all the things you learn when you're buying and dealing with MBAs and all the Wharton kids at the private equity group, that wasn't working. And then I relied on my own experience and I realized I had shitty leadership skills. I was cramming down on my people. I was telling them what to do. I wasn't leading them. I wasn't guiding them. I wasn't aligning them. So I went back to my mentor after writing that stuff down. And I said, I'm a shitty leader. Um, I'm a shitty operator. I abdicated. I hired people and threw them at things and I expected them to do it. Shitty leader, abdicator. So I converted that I was never going to be a shitty leader. I was going to help other people succeed. I was going to be in tune and aligned with my team. I wasn't going to abdicate. I was going to delegate. I was going to be really good at operations and process things that were really hard for me as a not very bright student to do with no formal training. And, and, and he said, okay, then here's your mentors. Read John Maxwell, 21 Irrefutable Laws of Leadership. Read, I'd already read Beyond Positive Thinking, Get My Mind Right. Read Good to Great, Great by Choice, How the Mighty Falls from Jim Collins. Read Emeth from Michael Gerber. Read Sharon Lecter's work. Like here's a list of books, read those and take pieces out of all of them to solve the problems you had on the right side that you screwed up and take pieces out that exemplify your knowledge on the left side so you can gain more confidence. So I went through that exercise over the course of about 15 months. And I came back to him and said, the whole problem with consolidation is psychology. When you buy somebody and you tell them what to do, what to do they're going to resist it. So I'm going to reverse consolidation. I'm going to give them equity in my company and I'm going to help all those independent business owners crush it in their business by leading them, by being an example. So true leadership is making other people's success easy. So I just kept thinking that over and over. How do I make their success? And I wasn't worried about money. I wasn't worried about anything. I launched that business. Everyone said I was crazy. I had to 
use some intuition and skill sets to argue with lawyers and accountants to create an equity model that everybody told me couldn't work. On my eighth attempt to get an exemption from the SEC to launch my business, I finally got it. I argued and won that case. I launched that business. I never raised any capital, which was another thing on my right side of mistakes. I didn't use anybody else's money. The other thing was I had total control. And then the third thing was um, I didn't want to have to need money because I spent so much time fundraising. I built Autogy generating $50 million of organic profit, following the model I created, tweaking it, making it better, teaching hundreds of business owners how to grow three and a half to 15 times. And then I exited it for 77 times, even 151 million to a business that was stuck at a billion. And the reason they bought me is they wanted to grow. Today, that business is four and a half billion. And they've turned over their C-suite globally twice. My executive team is still running everything. Something I'm very proud of. And then I partnered with Grant to bring this to every business owner. <clears throat> Excuse me, man. As I was tracking your story, I, I thought of like, six different questions there was just so much so much goodness in in everything that you just shared the first thing i want to circle back on is you touched on an interesting dynamic um you know and it was a loaded question when i asked you kind of what was the x factor i you know, pretty much already knew from your story tenacity was was the driver of a lot of your early success but there's a there's a dark there's a downside to tenacity that you just talked about, which is that pe you know when you're tenaciously driven in pursuit of a goal and pursuit of a mission and you and you have this self belief and nothing can be stopped, um, that's awesome and so much you did so much with that and then something bad happened and you know you give a dog the dog was given a different bone and you were just tenacious about that you were tenaciously negative. And so it seems like there's a there's an artistry to being tenaciously positive, but like very casually negative. Uh, I would say the artistry is while you're tenaciously positive. So what I learned about myself and what I see in a lot of businesses that fail or struggle is balancing tenaciously positive with wisdom and humility um, is the only thing that's going to work. And when you start buying into your own greatness and you, you, because here's the thing, Grant talks about this and it's true. Your assets will eventually become your liabilities. And your if, if, if addressed correctly, those liabilities can become future assets. But if you're not in the, if you're not assessing yourself that way constantly, so wisdom and humility has to go with belief and tenacity. And when you lose either side of those equations, you're in big trouble. So let's, let's, peel that apart a little bit when you just said, I mean, cause I, I think I get what you're saying. Your assets over time will become your liabilities. And if properly addressed, they will become even greater assets. Um, it kind of sounds like, well, before I say more about it, can you kind of maybe give me an example of, to illustrate that? Yeah. The tenacity to t never, never give up when people are telling me no, and to, to just keep driving and adjusting and fighting through and fighting through. And then I get through. Now I'm fighting to get to the next level, but I'm, I've lost going to my mentors and asking good questions. I, I just started to become self-reliant, right? Like I, I, I can do it. I'm just going to figure it out. I'm just going to plow through. I'm just put my head down. I'm just going to claw through it. If I can't figure it out, nobody can because I'm the smartest guy in the room. That, that asset that pushed me all of a sudden put blinders on me 
And when I had people with wisdom and guidance around me, I wasn't listening to them. I stopped going to them and saying, in this key situation, I have these choices. What should I do? Because had I done that and three very specific things that happened, I would have been worth a hundred million dollars. But instead I just made the decision based on what I thought was right. And then when it didn't work and I was being a victim to a couple of my mentors, they're like, dude, had you asked us, we would have told you to do the other thing. You, you didn't even ask. And I said, because I thought I knew better. I, I, I made the decision for myself. And so what you're saying then is as you start to, as, as what solved one problem, you push through and it emerges perhaps then as a, as a handicap or a, a limitation, if you tend to it, then it becomes an even greater asset. So how would that play out with the, the scenario you just described? Yeah, because what I learned, the reason I've been so successful is, uh, and I say this every conversation I have, the quality of your questions will always determine the quality of your results. Mm -hmm. So that asset of charging and pushing became a liability. I've learned to use that, that power to push me. But as soon as I recognize, because I've learned where it becomes a liability with me. So then I pause. I ask the question, who do I need wisdom and guidance from? Who would be a great mentor? Who would be somebody that has deep experience in this area? What are the best questions I can ask them? And then I go ask the questions and then I go, I go accelerate and execute and move again higher. So, so understanding that when I start getting into my reckless doing, that's an indicator to me that I'm, I'm fighting through something, but I'm not stopping. And most business owners keep fighting through until they collapse. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You know, it kind of reminds me of, uh, there's a book that's based on stoic stoicism. You may have read The Obstacle is the Way. Um, but it almost sounds like, bef in many cases, before the obstacle is the way, the way can become the obstacle. Yeah, if you think you're a know-it-all, and you think, you know, the thing that gets you the courage to go out and conquer, if, you know, you, you can be at the helm of the ship but if you don't know how to chart the course, you can get lost and kill your team. And the thing is, is that having the humility to say, I'm still the captain, but what makes me a great captain is surrounding myself with remarkable yeah. leadership. Not that I have to be that person. And, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs have the I syndrome because the only person at the end of the day they feel they can ultimately rely on is themselves. And that actually becomes a huge liability because then they don't open their mind to realizing really the way to growth is to surround myself with excellent, remarkable, aligned people. And that's my job to create that. So that becomes that, that thought, that limiting thought that's a liability. All of a sudden, when I break through it and realize that becomes a huge asset because now I get to teach everybody else that's the way you do it. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, I, I would say my own experience totally, totally reflects what you're saying. You know, I was I was doggedly independent and stubborn for years. And, you know, in the I didn't really become an I didn't really start business doing businesses till my late 20s. But, you know, I had a pretty good run of 10 years where I went from, you know, six figures to seven figures to eight figures, low eight figures. And I, I frankly, I thought I was pretty damn good at this. But with the business that I'm in now, I can look and say the absolute best move that I made was first of all, bringing in a partner who was strong where I'm weak and literally saying, here's half to help me. 
Um, and then, you know, growing a team and it's almost like the better you get, the less you should matter because you're just empowering other people to pick it up and run with it. So speaking of empowering and, and operating and building a team, I mean, you're talking about businesses that are doing the kind of scale that clearly you're not a one man show. It's not you and a couple virtual assistants. I mean, you're building big teams to do some of this, um, for someone with your background and without any formal training, although I I already know that formal training is pretty overrated when it comes to managing people. Um, but still, there's a lot that goes into systematizing and, and building the processes that allow you to scale a business. What was your, how did you learn to do that? I mean, to grow a, a company, you said you, 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 know, you were doing $50 million in profit. You sold it for $150 million. So, to do those kinds of numbers, you have to be, pr a pr even if you're a bad operator, you, you still have to be a pretty good operator. So like, how'd you learn to do that? Cause that's where I see a lot of small business owners hitting their ceiling is when it comes time to actually build uh, organizational, you know, to plug human capital into an organizational structure. They just, they don't know what to do. So how'd you learn? Yeah, well, that's, that was the, the Jim Collins, Michael Gerber thesis, my own experiences of buying hundreds and franchising a thousand and navigating through things. And then looking at all the, the, five or six consolidation theories in, in late 2001 and two that collapsed and failed and trying to understand why and then solving that problem. And so this is some of the business methodologies I created that I teach. So for example, what you're discussing is you need three things to become huge in business and create uh, unbelievable value. The three things you need is belief. The higher you believe, the higher you achieve. The second thing you need is operational effectiveness. The more effective you are at the pursuit of execution, the higher your belief goes. The less effective, the more it puts drag on your belief. And then the third component I had to learn is you need really unbelievable me leadership, which a lot of entrepreneurs have strong me leadership, but they don't develop intentionally their we leadership. Mm. So the three elements is belief, operational effectiveness, and leadership. And those things have to work so when I do an assessment on a business, a business owner will be, yeah, we're going to take the moon. We're going to go crazy. They rank themselves so high in belief. And then we rank their operational effectiveness on a scale of one to 10, there are two or three. And then their me leadership is, a, is an eight or nine, but their we leadership is a two or three, but they'll tell you they're an amazing leader. And then how many employees do you have? Two. Well, uh, there's no such thing as an amazing anything with two of anything. Right. So, so you're asking the wrong questions. And when you have somebody that's truly an eight, nine or 10 in belief an eight, nine or 10 in operational effectiveness, eight, nine and 10 in we leadership, that's the business that takes off because, and, and, and so for me, I can assess that within two or three questions of a business owner. I don't need to know anything about their business. I just need to ask them three effective questions. And then basically I'll know if they have a big business or not. And so, so the, the, the point is, uh, understanding the cycle of how things mechanically have to fit together. I had to teach myself that because I didn't know it. I had this huge belief and I had remarkable me leadership. What I missed is I had almost no we leadership and I had no operational effectiveness. So eventually everything collapsed and then I got negative. If so, so you can't have high operational effectiveness and low leadership. You think it was harder for Michael Phelps to crash and smash his own records or somebody else's? Because with somebody else's, he could model, mimic, and master what they were doing. 
Right. When he devastated him, now he had to go a whole nother increment. So he had to become more operational effectiveness, which chased his belief he could beat himself, which took relentless me leadership and we because he needed to rely on a whole bunch of coaches and dietitians and stretch people and mentalists, whatever he had as an arsenal to work together for the purpose of smashing the records that he already smashed. That's got to be harder than chasing somebody else. So when you think about business, it's the same thing. And all businesses have natural break points, zero to 3 million, three to eight, eight to 15, 15, 25, 25, 45, 45, 75, 75, 120. I could do that all up to four and a half million or billion. And if you don't know what those break points are and you don't understand how to break through them, you're going to make the same mistakes every single entrepreneur makes. And for my purpose to exist, it's just to eliminate any ambiguity about what you need to do to grow to the level you want to get to. And then it's the entrepreneur's choice or the, 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 the high producing individual's choice to opt into that. And that's the, that's what I've created over the last 15 years is a very specific methodology to go from zero to, you know, 4 billion. And it's all been reverse engineered. It's been research. I, you know, I have it all and I created business principles and concepts on all the shit I learned. And that's what I teach in businesses that use it from startup all the way to, you know, 300 million, $400 million can, accelerate significantly and the people I work with are seeing that. So, you know, that's what I'm excited. I'm my passion is improving the lives of people I work with personally, professionally, financially through their business. And, and that's what I choose as the vehicle, their business, not mine. Well, I want to, I want to acknowledge that, you know, we just, we just met and magically you literally just like pinned me to the wall, super high belief, super good me leadership terrible organizational effectiveness and probably a limited understanding of we leadership. I think I've, I've emerged into that and you're right. I hit a, I hit a, a ceiling and it crumbled. And even then when I recognized that I'd hit the ceiling and I tried to exit in a hurry and I was able to sell the business, even then I got screwed on the sale because it just, yeah, it, all the pieces didn't fit. And in, and, and that's been a maturation process where, I mean, you've, you've called it my assets became my liabilities but finally having to look at that situation and say, man, I really don't know how to build an organization that is designed for scale. And I never really fully committed to creating culture and alignment to create the tribe that could truly, that would scale. And, you know, in the last two and a half years, I've, I've gotten, I think I've patched some of those, those holes largely through bringing in people that were better than me. And, uh, you know, now I, I, I would love, you know, on a separate conversation, I'd love to have you poke holes in what we're doing now. But I mean, you, you just, you nailed it. And, and probably more importantly, not by coincidence, I'm sure you, you called out a lot of business owners, high belief, high me leadership, suck at organization, suck it at team building. I mean, and, 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 and we don't need to guess at that because there's 31 and a half small to mid-sized businesses in the United States, 31 million and a half. And 25 million of those have a single employee. Yeah. 5.3 million have between two and 15 and 600,000 have over 15. So obviously if it was easy to break through something you started on your own and then assimilate a team and then accelerate a team, uh, you'd have a lot more than 600,000 out of 31 and a half million. And so uh, the, and two thirds of those businesses will fail uh, on a five-year cycle. And the chief three complaints for failure is 
uh, no demand for product or service, which is obviously a blatant excuse because no one would start a business if they didn't think there was a demand. Right. The second is they blame the fact they can't hire good people to help them. And the third is they can't get capital or funding, but who would give somebody money that can't prove their own concept? So the fact is, is that what really causes businesses to fail is, is a lack of understanding of technically how to build them and the, and the required elements which are belief, operational effectiveness, me, and then we leadership and being focused on building those out simultaneously, which is why I've created all the business concepts that I teach people and make it very simple for them to succeed um, in technical order of growing and scaling a business. And I can take them out to, you know, two or three billion, four billion dollars to do that. So it's, it's, it, it it just depends on how big people want to get and people get on my format and they start just even high performance individuals and they just start cutting through all the minutia because you can you have two ways to grow as a human trial and error or by being mentored and studying a master this is the only two ways and 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 trial and error is working harder not smarter so then the question is is like I tell anybody that wants to succeed, when they tell me, oh, I want to have my own business, I want to succeed, blah, 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 blah. I say, okay, give me your targets. One year, three year, five year. I don't know. I mean, I just got to push. Well, why don't you know? Well, I, I mean, how would I know? Well, because you should be following somebody that can show you how to do it. Well, how do I find that person? You got to find, like, find something that somebody's willing to, like, do some research, lean into it. And, and, and ask the right questions. That's why the quality of your questions will always determine the quality of your impact and results. And so model, mimic, and master after somebody. I got a buddy, my mentor, Hector Lamarck, he's, he's taught hundreds of people how to become millionaires in the financial services space uh, at Primerica. And he's got thousands making a hundred grand, uh, half a million. Like find success, ingratiate yourself to it, Model, mimic, and master after it. Set your targets and pursue it with all the tenacity in the world, understanding that you need humility to go with your courage. And you need to not overestimate your strengths and always under, always overestimate your blind spots. Yeah. Like, learn to ask great questions from people who have succeeded. Yeah, that's a that's a Charlie Munger thing to overestimate your your blind spots and sort of amplify your threats and your planning. So I'm I'm curious. Uh, you know, you talked about organizational effectiveness. You were you were largely able, and and I would say I've experienced this too, to learn a lot from books. I mean, there are amazing business books on how businesses, good businesses are built, and bad bad businesses are built too. Um, we leadership a little more of a qualitative. Thing. I'm curious, what's your self-education strategy for somebody who maybe can't afford to come hire you as a consultant? What's your self-education strategy for learning good we leadership, as you put it? Yeah, same same thing I had to do. Um, so John Maxwell has 21 irrefutable laws of leadership. He has 17 laws of teamwork and he has 15. Uh, I always get these mis mixed up. He has 17 laws of teamwork and 15 something laws of something but he's i think it's 53 total laws learn all of those laws and 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 apply them have a realistic pursue the more weaknesses you have the more mistakes you've made as a human 
the more you can apply those laws. That, that's, that, that's the hard way. If you're not trying stuff, you're not, you're gonna be like, well, how does this relate to me? Right. If you're out trying a lot of things like I was doing and failing is like, how do I fix these problems? And, and most people don't want to acknowledge that they suck as being a great leader. So, you know, I, I, I listen to people all the time, business owners who assess themselves. I have these assessments they go through and they assess themselves as really high leaders. And, and so then I role play with them and I just, you know, I basically just devastate their theory. Um, and, 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 and then they're like, oh my gosh, maybe I'm not as good as I thought because it's all relative. If you come from nothing and now you have a million dollars, you think you're great. Right. Uh, but if you had the capacity, the ability to be worth a hundred million or create a hundred people that are each worth a million and you'd give up on that, then you're a low level leader. So just, just master uh, Maxwell's laws and uh, the five levels of leadership and level five leaders with Jim Collins and and so, you know, when you mesh it all together and you take great notes and you apply it to situations, like I have people that tell me, I hate my job. I want to leave and go start something. I said, before you do that, hold on. Because when you move away from something to start something, you take the garbage with you. You need to, you need to identify in the moment, whatever thought you have, you need to turn that into a corresponding positive so that you learn to do it when you're in charge. So I tell people, study everything you think is wrong, just like I had to do with myself. A great, if you work for someone and you're like, man, this company, there's good things, there's bad things. Some leaders are great, some suck. Start a notebook of all the great things you see and write down all the things you think are bad decisions or that are wrong. Learn where you're at and then ask yourself, how can I create the highest impact here? How can I make myself so valuable this organization can't have not have me here? Because whatever you take out of a situation, you bring with you. And, and, and I'll tell you, most entrepreneurs that hire great people run them off because they have this inherent fear because, see, they thought they were great where they were at and they figured the company didn't acknowledge that. And so they left that company. Then they start their own business. And then they think anybody great that comes in here is probably going to leave me. So as soon as they become important, they run them off. And I watch this cycle over and over. So just remember, you carry everything forward with you. So whatever you have for your future self, like if you want to have highly aligned, highly inspired, highly engaged, highly active, highly contributing employees, you need to first become one. Master what that is, and then you'll know those attributes and characteristics. And when you start a business, find those people, develop them, and never lose them. So let's apply that in a, in a real-time context. Um, you know, for somebody who already has a business, they, they can't go be a great employee somewhere else because they already have a going concern. How can someone in an entrepreneurial leadership business owner position experientially develop the, the great employee way that allows them to better connect with, understand, empathize with, and support their employees? Yeah. So first of all, I've interviewed somewhere between six and 8,000 entrepreneurs in my career, okay? And I actually did a research project, 3,800 entrepreneurs across the spectrum of 100 different industries. When I ask an entrepreneur, what's the number one biggest problematic area of your business? What do you think they say? Not enough money. My employees. Oh, empl yeah, employees, sure. That, it's always number one. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, and so if you have the belief, if you have the fundamental high belief that employees are always a problem, how are you ever going to develop unbelievable employees? Yeah. 
because what you think is what you say, what you say is what you do, it becomes your legacy. So I'll be known for having a bunch of problematic employees. Gallup poll comes out every year, 28 million actively engaged, highly aligned employees that love their job. Two thirds are disengaged or actively disengaged and the bottom 25% are intentionally sabotaging your organization. Right. So knowing that the question you have to ask yourself is how do I create a culture an operational environment, a financial and alignment environment where, where great people want to stay here and accelerate their personal, professional, and financial career and understand there's enough room in the organization to grow so they can they can go out and conquer. You know, when I sold my business, my leadership team, 65% of my leadership team, it was the first jobs they ever had. They started out, they all had between six, seven, eight, nine different positions. They all had bosses. They all at different points could have quit. I told them, if you're willing to give up on yourself, go ahead. But when I sold the business, I paid out $15 million to every employee I had. And my president got almost 10 million. My vice presidents all got a couple million. And then every single employee got paid out. And I, I wired 43 million to my customers. The people who had stayed with me and stayed customers all through that 15 years. So you can win lots of ways if you're committed to winning. And if you make yourself so valuable that companies can't afford to not have you. As an entrepreneur, it's your job to find, align, retain, and develop those people. You're never going to hire outsiders to come in and fix your problem. So you must percolate it and develop it from the inside. So you ask the question, uh, these are what our concepts teach. You got to identify the attributes you want in your organization. You have to identify the competencies, those attributes, those people bring to the table. And you have to have a development plan to continue to accelerate that and align them personally, professionally, and financially with the success of the business so great people don't leave. And you, may, and you say that to every person you hire. I want to have a system where great people will never leave here versus all my employees are my problems. And then you will attract a higher quality contributor because you have a bigger plan. You have a bigger, you have a bigger attachment to the success of the business and, and you value those contributions. So if you, money's fifth on the list. If I value somebody, if I'm developing somebody, if I'm pushing somebody, if they're ascending in their career and their competency and they're, and, and they're getting to do new things and break through, money's five. So if you do all five of those things and you put your attention to it, your business will grow accidentally. So entrepreneurs and business owners focus on the what they do. So you ask, well, if, I'm, if I don't know how to do it, how do I do it? You need to learn how to do it. You need to plug into somebody who's teaching you how to do it, which is what I do, which is why we have thousands of business owners that have come online with us in the last 18 months through Grant's ecosystem and are crushing it right now. Yeah, it seems to me that, you, you know, you make an interesting point. If you think, if you think your employees are problems you know, problems are things that you solve. Well, if you're trying to solve another person, that's going to create a pretty bad dynamic between the two of you. But if you think your employees are assets, assets are things that you grow. That's going to create a lot better dynamic. So yeah, a lot of it, you're right, is, is probably language. Um, so well, the language, remember the language follows the mind. What you think is what you say. Right. And what you say is what you create. And it's what you say is, is the evidence. It's like the tangible evidence of what you thought. And you can't have, you can't have conflicting thoughts to actions. Right. Eventually you're uncovered. I mean, you, you, you think you're saying the right thing, but I do so much uh, leadership coaching over the last 10 years. I mean, 
thousand people through it. I, I put them under pressure, put cameras on them mm -hmm. and role play things that they were really challenged with. And they'll say they didn't say anything and we'll run the tape back and they'll be like, I cannot believe I said that. I mean, people unconscious, unconscious activity happens all the time. Yeah, that's interesting. So, um, you know, we only have a few minutes left. I want to be respectful of your time. Um, can you share a little bit more? You know, first, I'd like to have an opportunity for you to share briefly about Cardone Ventures. I, I don't want to just assume everybody knows what it is. I've I've studied it. I've been through your process. I've, I was this close to doing a deal with you guys. So I kind of know, but can you share with the public? And then I also want to hear about this Make Money uh, Money Makers tour that you do. Yeah. So I partnered with uh, who I believe is the world's greatest uh, sales and personal development, professional development trainer in the world, which is Grant Cardone. And obviously he's, he is the number one crowdfunding raiser over half a billion dollars, uh, for real estate investing. And he's an expert at doing those things. So my expertise is in personal, professional, financial scaling through businesses or through high performance activities and that are related to business. I don't get involved with, with like athletes and things like that. Right. Um, so Cardone Ventures was created to take high-performing individuals or business owners that want to 10X or 100X their business, um, but don't know how and are struggling. And so we really specialize as, as we work, we have what's called the, the generic stuff. People go through the business programs and all the things I've created that, that teach them business format, teaches them very simple ways to do things to grow and scale. Then as we find five to 10 to 20 to $50 million businesses that want to really go big fast, that's our venture side. So we'll actually partner with them and then we'll accelerate their growth. So a lot of businesses that are 20 or 30 million will go out to private equity to raise capital, to go buy a management team and systems and all that so they can do their next iteration of growth. But now they have the gun to their head from the private equity group that says, if you don't double in the next four years, you're gonna lose most of the value of your business. So a lot of them are hesitant to do that. So I wanted an alternative. So they can partner with Grant and I. I bring all of my leadership team in, in a partnership structure, and we help accelerate and grow your business. So you don't have to learn to do it. We'll come do it with you. And so um, that's our ventures side of the business. And, and so basically, Grant wants to create a $10 billion real estate portfolio. I'm creating a $10 billion uh, business portfolio we're going to put those two things together and I'll probably take them out in an IPO uh, down the road and we'll paper our own relationships. There's 45% uh, of the GDP is made up of six of three different industries. Those three industries are represented only 6% on the stock market. There's 30 trillion of wealth transferring happening, wealth transfer happening in the next 10 years. That wealth is going 70% to family offices. Those family offices cannot invest in anything under a billion dollars that generates a profit because they need a 3% distribution for heirs and, and trusts and uh, people's uh, nonprofits. So most of the Americans, 45% of the GDP will not have access to all this cash. My job and Grant's job is to create a vehicle that will bring that cash to those people. And that's what we're focused on. What, what are those three industries that represent 45% of GDP, but they're only 6% of the listings? Yeah, so so interesting, because when I say it, you're gonna be like, wow, there's a lot of, you have to unpack each industry. So small healthcare, yeah, you can imagine how many businesses are in there. Yeah, yeah. Real estate, when I use that word, you can go, hmm, that has a lot of definitions. 
and uh, and uh, small services like HVAC and electrical and right. you know you go on to all the small business services. So they employ and create 45% of the GDP, but yet the marketplace is only representing them in the high valuation opportunities of 6%. My job is to create a multi, multi-billion dollar fund and I've reverse engineered it. So if you look at Warren Buffett did and how he held and invested and created massive businesses that generate cash, KKR came out and did a study three years ago and said, had we invested and held instead of invested and sold, we would have been bigger than Warren Buffett. So KKR pivoted, they invest and hold and they took KKR public. So that's what we're going to do with Cardone Equities down the road is we're going to take all these businesses we're partners with and our real estate, we're going to put it into Cardone Equities Group and take that public and then give access as an alternative investment vehicle for millions and millions of people that don't want to do the traditional stuff. Yeah, it sounds it sounds pretty interesting. Again, I'd love to unpack it on another conversation. I know we're about out of time. How can, um, if the world wants to know more about you, and what you're doing and how to work with you or even just how to learn from you, where would you like to steer people? The easiest way to, to, to connect to what we're doing is just go to my Instagram, uh, Brandon M. Dawson, at Brandon, B-R-A-N-D-U-N-M-D-A-W-S-O-N. Right. And that'll funnel you to everything. Or you can go to CardoneVentures.com. Um, if you're a business owner or you're working in a business that's struggling right now, I want to have a free gift for you. Go to CardoneVentures.com forward slash emergency. It's the ebook I wrote on what to do in a crisis or emergency um, and, and download it. And if you're working for someone, you could be their hero that they're going to give equity to for helping them. Every business owner needs a hero. Don't wait for Don't wait for a business owner to ask you. Put yourself in play. Take action, learn and develop, come up with ideas. You know what's wrong with the business. Help those business owners. They need the help. If you're a business owner, download the book and find people who will help you. And, and you'll weather this and you'll come out stronger on the other side. Um, what about this? Uh, and, and first of all, yes, that's very generous. And, and I'm not in a crisis, but I'm going to look at it anyways because I love to learn. But uh, what about this Moneymakers tour? Is that something you'd like to, to talk about? Yeah. So as we go around the country, we're doing deals for people we partnered with. Like we had a $30 million business we're acquiring. The owner put 30, uh, $29 million of cash into it. We're buying it for a couple million dollars because he didn't know how to operate it. You know, the Moneymaker Tour, while we're in those areas going around the country doing deals, we're also allocating three hours a day to meet entrepreneurs in those markets to just come meet, ask questions, get to know us and talk about what we do and how we do it. And so, uh, and I would counteract what you said. You said you're not in a crisis, but I believe you are in a crisis. I believe you're in a crisis because if I asked you fast forward five or 10 years from now, what's your number? What's your target? What, what do you want to say to me? five years from now, your revenue, your profitability, and your net worth. Pick five years. Tell me what it is right now. Five years. Yeah. I, I believe there's a good chance in five years I've sold my company. Okay. So what's your target? Billion dollars. Okay. One billion. Mm -hmm. So if, and, 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 and what percent of that billion are you today? I would say trending for this year, well, billion dollar valuation. I mean, that'll be yeah, sure. That'll that's hard to gauge, but I would say we're probably a quarter of the way there. Okay, so then you're in a crisis or emergency because that you gotta you gotta grow up four x in five years to actualize that, and you have uh, fourteen breakpoints you have to go through. So, 
you're in a crisis because any one of those breakpoints will make or break you. And there's so many different, the bigger you get, there's so many different elements. That's why I say every business that's growing is in a crisis or emergency. The only ones that aren't are the ones that are flat. They are though, because they're actually losing, right? If you're like this, you're in a crisis or emergency. You're one key man or one bad contract or one lawsuit or one train wreck away from everything crashing and burning. And, and that's what the, all the work Jim Collins did with big, healthy organizations that got crushed, right? right? So I say to every business owner, that's the humility and the blind spots. Like we're all, I'm in a crisis and emergency every day. Right, Embrace right. it, love it, and live it. Yeah, that's, that's a fair point. And, and I'll, I'll accept that. I'll, I'll, I'll go into crisis management perspective because I do take your point. And, you know, we have some rabbits in our hat and mechanisms that we're going to use to get there. But I, I totally take your point. Like I said, I love to learn. I'm going to download the book. Brandon, I wish we weren't out of time. Unfortunately, we are. This has been like incredible. I feel like uh, I'm smarter than I was an hour ago. You're clearly, um, you know, gifted at what you do. And I just want to say thank you for coming on Millionaire Secrets. I know this has been super valuable for the audience. Hey, and I love being on your show. Thanks for having me. And, and I'm excited to watch your success. And hopefully we can find a way where maybe Grant and I can help you do it a little faster. That sounds great. I've, I've met the both of you now. My audience got to hear from Grant last week. So thanks again. And thank you to the wonderful, amazing, incredible, superlative, inspiring Millionaire Secrets audience. You are truly the reason I do what I do every day and you're the best part of this show. I'll see you on the next episode. Take care. You just finished this episode of the Millionaire Secrets podcast. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please like and share this episode and do leave us a review. Let us know how we impacted you today. Your next step toward creating your awesome life is to join me and thousands of others in the Entra Nation community where you'll receive free training, networking with other awesome life seekers, access to live events, discounts, merchandise, and other awesome perks. Head over to www.entranation.com. That is www.entrenation.com and join us today. And of course, do please follow me on social media. I can be found on all the major social networks at Jeff Lerner Official. Thank you again for listening and please go be awesome.